Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Ball. Thank you for being with us. This show is brought to you by Bull Realty, government-leased property investment team, sell GSA, state, and county uh, leased properties all around the Southeast U.S. Visit bullrealty.com for more information. And we're going to talk something related to that today. We're going to talk about public-private partnership. You know, it seems like a lot of the municipalities, the cities, especially in counties, are looking for these kinds of developments, and they're looking to build these city centers. Maybe they're looking for hospitals. They're looking for convention centers, hotels. Um, how do they do it? How does this work? And we hear there's a lot of demand and, and a lot of interest in this, as we're going to talk about today. Please welcome my guest. It's Ray Garfield. He is chairman of Garfield Public Private LLC. He's here in Studio One. Ray, good to meet you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here as well. Thank you. So let's start with kind of a general idea of, of public-private partnerships. What's the benefit for the municipalities to get involved in these partnerships? Well, Many cities uh, have essential infrastructure mm -hmm. that they uh, struggle to get financed in a traditional manner. Um, and uh, the program that we developed over the last 26 years uh, has been to step in and help to come up with creative uh, financial solutions to moving critical infrastructure forward years ahead of when it can typically be brought to, uh, into the community. Yeah. And the financing today is a, is a big question for, for everybody, right, with the interest rates being higher and some lenders uh, being more stringent on their underwriting. How, how, are, you, how are you financing these deals where they, when they work in today's environment? Well, you're right. The last two years have seen um, unprecedented inflation, uh, and the Fed has continued to increase uh, interest rates at least uh, through a couple of months ago. Uh, so rates are significantly higher than they were uh, as recently as the fall of 2021, when we uh, financed uh, the most recent three uh, developments that we've completed this year. Uh, those were at sort of historic low interest rates. Now, when we go in to sell the same sort of piece of infrastructure, we're having to deal with, with two hurdles. One is the fact that um, the amount of inflation that's occurred, uh, this COVID inflation, the supply chain issues, coupled with the Fed's interest rate hikes uh, have created um, uh, a requirement for probably more public investment in a public-private partnership. And that is, um, there's no question that that's a, a challenge uh, for these communities. Um, you know, it, it, just two years ago, we could uh, uh, build a convention hotel and require about 35% contribution from the public sector. Um, today, that's probably at least 50% because of both issues, because of inflation and the new interest rate environment. Talk to us about um, tax-exempt bonds and how those work in these partnerships. You know, that's a great question, Michael. Um, some years ago, and we got into this business back in the late 1990s, um, probably in the early uh, to mid-2000s, um, just about every international purveyor of public-private partnerships 
came knocking at our door to say, well, tell us what you guys have been doing for the last six, seven, eight years. And, um, and we'd have trouble getting through to them, number one, because they were coming from Europe or they were coming from Australia or um, anywhere offshore. The United States is the only nation in the world that has federal legislation allowing for tax-exempt bonds, municipal tax-exempt bonds. And, um, and when you're trying to sell a program that may have worked in Canada or England or Australia uh, to a government here in the United States, and those programs have all been conventionally financed, taxable bonds, uh, and we can sell tax-exempt bonds um, that are significantly less expensive than conventional mortgages, um, you know, that, that would strip away a, a, a big piece of business they were looking to do. So tax-exempt rates um, account for the fact that bond investors and tax-exempt bonds don't have to pay Uncle Sam taxes on the interest that they receive every year on those bonds. Consequently, you don't have to have that additional interest rate burden uh, accompanying uh, a tax-exempt bond that you have with a taxable bond. So the cost of occupancy for a public sector client is lower simply because you're able to do a tax-exempt structure instead of a conventional structure. That's nice. So what types of properties and uses uh, can qualify for tax-exempt bond finance? Um, our clients are cities, counties, state agencies, universities, airport authorities, healthcare campuses, um, any entity that you think of in this broad public sector world, right? If they're, if they're essentially not-for-profit entities, uh, you're able to look at the potential of a tax exempt delivery. Uh, interestingly, fun being back here in Atlanta with you, thank you, but Atlanta was one of the first successful public-private partnerships that Garfield delivered. We um, were brought here to see if we could get a municipal courthouse done for the city of Atlanta. Um, in the early 2000s, um, and um, it, that courthouse wasn't going to be built for a four or five year period uh, at the time because it wasn't on a public referendum ballot, um, and we were able to uh, find a very creative tax exempt solution that, that um, avoided a public referendum. Um, we basically converted the use of fines and forfeiture revenues coming into the city of Atlanta um, to use a portion of those revenues to amortize a, a separate tax exempt bond to build a municipal courthouse for the for the city, which we did. And it was a, a very successful project uh, at the time, and I'm sure it served the city well. Yeah, and talk to us about the benefit to a, a city doing something like that. If uh, if they do say a, a 30 year bond, and and, uh, and and what happens? during the ownership and what happens at the end of the 30 years? So this applies to really any project that we would develop, whether it would be the courthouse for Atlanta or whether it's a convention center headquarters hotel for Abilene, Texas. Um, if they're owned by a not-for-profit, um, that not-for-profit typically owns the asset off the balance sheet of our public client, off the city's balance sheet, if you will. Uh, for the time it has a mortgage on it. Um, but when the mortgage is amortized and, and it no longer has that financial burden on it, then the property is given to the city. It's given to your 
to your public client, free and clear of that of that mortgage. So um, we're able to a keep that asset off the balance sheet of our client uh, for uh, the time that it does have that extra burden of debt on it, and then deliver it free and clear, uh, you know, finally to the city. But they've had the use of it for that thirty-year period of time. That's that's excellent. You know, a lot of uh, cities are trying to attract uh, businesses and employees uh, back to the city. Uh, I know uh, you're using Atlanta as examples where our show's headquartered or my firm's headquartered. There's a lot of nice cities around Atlanta, if you will, that are building city centers and, and, and they're building significant properties. Can they use these public-private partnerships and, and tax-exempt bonds and create um, a tax-free entity to do these things? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's um, it's fun to think about some of the multiple projects we had for a few cities. Um, we did developed a, uh, a headquarters hotel and in, in convention center for um, a community in Texas. Right after that, we were hired to envision a performing arts center for them, um, help them set up a not-for-profit, um, help them raise the funds for the new performing arts center. Uh, that opened in 2021, um, and now we're in the process of of um, working with architects and contractors to design and price a new exposition center for their agri for their rodeos, uh, agricultural events, um, uh, equestrian events, uh, uh, performing artists that will come into this arena, um, and it's a combination of public debt and private investment, naming rights. Uh, pouring rights for Coca-Cola versus Pepsi or, or um, you know, different beer purveyors or, or uh, box sales, private seat sales and things of that nature. So you have all this private revenue coming in, coupled with the public investment that needs to be made in order to fully finance the entire, you know, project. So it, it, it doesn't matter what that piece of infrastructure is or pieces of infrastructure. You can look to collaborate with that community, um, you know, over a period of years to help pull pull them up and uh, and provide better infrastructure for their way of life for the citizens in that community. One of the things cities are trying to do seems like everywhere it's, is deal with affordable housing as home prices and interest rates have risen. It's sometimes hard for the the teachers and firemen and folks to to actually live in these cities. Can these partnerships uh, work for affordable housing? Yeah, I think they can. Um, you know, we we found that um, uh, some communities are, are more accepting of uh, those developments than others. Um, we we find it a challenge uh, when we find a community that's very expensive to live in. Um, tremendous growth, tremendous industrial growth and business growth. Uh, and, but they have to get their employees to come for miles, uh, you know, you know, to, to, to business in that city every day. And then to get um, a mayor, a city council staff to approve affordable housing or workforce housing, housing that uh, you need to offer to the new tenants at 80% of, of mean income, uh, you know, values uh, for, for their rent. We found them more resistant to to that, but when you look at the demand uh, to have your your workers to live near where they're actually going to work, 
it's important to be able to provide that type of, of infrastructure. Um, and yes, uh, you, um, you, you can develop uh, uh, public-private partnerships in that uh, fashion, but you also just need to make that land available as well for traditional private developments of, of housing, which has certainly been one of the stronger points of, of real estate over the last 10 or 15 years. If you can get it entitled to build, though, you can use these public-private partnerships, I assume, um, and the tax-exempt bonds to, to build them? It depends upon whether your public client wants to remain involved. Okay. <clears throat> We're working with one county right now that has a maintenance facility and an important part of their county um, that looks at that land as potentially land that can be developed into affordable housing. If they retain ownership of the land, if, if, if the county itself retains ownership of that land and contributes that land into a partnership that would build this new housing, you absolutely can structure it and using tax exempt bonds and make it a more affordable housing community. But uh, you need that public ownership of, of the ground in order to make the justification for um, the not-for-profit financing that you'd use. You may, you may, you'll set up a not-for-profit entity, whether it's a local government corporation or a 501c3, uh, that would step in and nominally own it for the benefit of your public client while it has the debt on it, but can provide that important piece of infrastructure, you know, to serve its community. Yeah. And they can retain ownership, but they don't really have to operate it, right? They can bring in a third party operator to operate the property and manage it. Something we really encourage communities to seriously think about uh, is exactly that. I mean, there are firms, many firms, names that you would know that, that do management and operations and maintenance routinely and do it very well. Uh, it's better to have that third party private owner, or that mm -hmm. manager right. maintaining the property because that's what they do and that's what they're paid to do mm -hmm. rather than have the public agency itself try to manage that facility mm -hmm. <clears throat> when it's... Um, when it's really not uh, geared to do that. In fact, the budgets are not necessarily geared to make the annual input for the maintenance upkeep of these facilities. Um, but if they're built in, you know, if we build a building and then estimate the annual cost of, of maintenance and upkeep at that time, so it's built into that public budget, into that property budget, that's important. It'll maintain the property. If you just design and build it and then expect it to be maintained and let it be maintained by your municipal agencies and so forth, it's likely to go into disrepair faster. Yeah, that's a good point. And we've seen that selling government lease buildings uh, around the southeast that um, to that are privately owned. You know, they have nice reserves and professional management and the government tenants um, are, are fully serviced. Right. They don't have to manage or maintain a property. Uh, which they, they really seem seem to like. You know, one of the things that uh, the government seems to be doing is really pushing uh, uh, U.S. citizens and companies toward electric vehicles, right? Uh, there's incentives and, and it seems to be a real push to, to go all electric. But it seems like in some cases we don't have enough infrastructure, enough electricity. Um, can solar and wind farms, can, can that be a use uh, and be a public-private partnership? Yeah, in fact, um, 
in the last couple of years, we've established a new uh, entity, uh, Garfield Clean Energy, and uh, have entered into our first uh, solar venture with a municipality. You know, it's basically right in the middle of the fairway for the business that we've done for the last 26 years is to help support these communities. So we have a city in Texas that has a significant amount of raw land that it owns. Basically, it's been agriculturally leased, farmers. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't produce much revenue for the city, as you can imagine. So we're trying to re-envision, and, and by the way, Texas has one of the, uh, it has, an, has its own energy grid, which has been stressed the last few years. Um, we had a terrible winter a couple of years ago where there were outages all over the state. And, uh, uh, and even this past summer, uh, we had uh, projected potential outages. We managed to creep through without many outages. But to get new energy into the grid, and that's what hopefully developing this 100, maybe 200 or 300 megawatt development for this municipality in Central Texas will help. It'll help put new renewable energy, much less cost than, than uh, the coal and gas-fired you know, plants and so forth, um, into the grid. Um, and there are federal incentives, tax incentives, that make it very attractive, by the way, to help get these uh, new developments in the ground. So uh, we're right now in the process of, of about a 12 to 18 month process to get this shovel ready, if you will, to get the approvals of all the agencies that have to give you those approvals and going through the applications, the interconnection studies and so forth is, uh, is important. But I think for cities, uh, for universities that have a lot of excess land, for airport authorities and so forth, uh, counties, et cetera, even states that have uh, additional uh, land that, that uh, you know, significant land they own, particularly in the Sun Belt, where the solar farms will work well, or wind farms, uh, that's a really important, uh, you know, new uh, initiative that we're doing and I think any number of companies could do. Yeah, well, that makes sense, uh, especially for universities and, and airports and where you you really have to have the power there. So, yeah. right, we, we can't go without it. Uh, if we had uh, no power at the Atlanta airport even for an hour, it would cause problems across the U.S. With, with, <laughs> without a doubt, and providing your own locally supplied, less expensive mm -hmm. energy into, uh, into your facility is really important. Yeah. So dealing with government municipalities and and the and, and the timing there, you know, what would you tell our audience? You know, that the specialization of that, you know, what what have been the challenges? Uh, what have been what, what's been great about it? Um, well, I you know, look, uh, we got into this uh, business uh, um, maybe more accidentally than on purpose originally. Um, you know, we were asked by a major, you know. Uh, general contractor to help increase their awards by coming up with a, a different solution for uh, their their public clients. And so um, in the late 1990s, we began to look at uh, it converting from a traditional um, delivery program for the public sector, which you, you know historically had been um, you know, basically designing the project. And once it was fully designed, then bringing contractors in and having them try to estimate the cost, really a challenge. And, uh, and so we wanted to do something that was predictably uh, 
had a lot more certainty. Um, so we worked uh, and uh, converted this uh, program that was originally called Design, Build, Design, Bid, Build, Litigate, and then Occupy <laughs> um, into uh, a design build program for the most sophisticated general construction companies in the country. And, uh, and, and delivered a program for all of these public sector clients that we've talked about, cities, universities, hospitals, et cetera, into one where they, they know if they had a piece of infrastructure, they wanted to plan to capitalize it and move it forward, break ground, and then open it up in a couple of years, you know, cut the ribbon and start using it, that they could do it in a, in a more certain manner, a more sure manner, more predictable manner, a more quality manner that uh, they could move into and, and know it was going to be a, a great building. So um, by using uh, for the non-federal uh, work that we do, it's mostly all tax exempt, which provides, again, as I said before, the lowest cost of occupancy for this city or the school or, or whatever it is, it's just a lower cost of occupancy than, than a, a traditional fully privately developed, uh, developed property. That's the difference in, I think, uh, what, what we've been able to offer and what some of the international firms have been bringing to the table. What would you leave our audience with to think about related to public-private partnerships uh, moving forward? Well, I think we've all heard about uh, you know the, the government's uh, emphasis on infrastructure and the, the, the deteriorated infrastructure that we've got throughout the nation, and that the importance of, um, of of upgrading that infrastructure for the 21st century. So I think that there there is definitely federal support for that. Um, what we need to see is not only the federal support, but we need to see the uh, the state and local support uh, for that also. It's one thing when you can get, well, you know, schools have referendums and, and they've pretty much successfully been able to get the voters to approve their new school buildings that they need. Less successful in perhaps getting them to approve a performing arts facility or a stadium or an arena or basketball, you know, gymnasium or whatever it is. Um, and and or an administration building for a school district where the administrators are in a dilapidated building but the schools are you know terrific so it, it's uh, taking those other buildings that aren't traditionally delivered figuring out if there's a a better financial path for them to get those other important pieces of property that they need developed on and uh, in, in moving forward and so I, look I, I think our entry back in the late 1990s was great timing for us. Um, and, uh, and, and we see more opportunity today than we did at that time, much more. Yeah. Let's jump back for a moment to the um, solar and uh, wind uh, farms and, and uh, what types, how much acreage and what types of properties uh, and ownership groups uh, you know, might work best for that? Well, so we, we looked at, uh, you know, one uh, particular property in, um, I think, in the state of Louisiana where we needed to develop something that was under 50 megawatts. It, it, 50 megawatts is about a $50 million development, okay? So, and that's at least a couple of hundred acres, uh, the, you know, to do that. It's a big solar farm. Um, and uh, 
in, in that state, we needed to do it because of that state's legislation uh, and their bid laws and so forth. We were able to, to have more facility to deal with something smaller than bigger. So this uh, new municipality in Texas that we're working with, we're dealing with a couple of thousand acres of developable property. We want to take it in pieces. And so we're looking at a 100 megawatt development to begin with, phase one, about $100 million. And probably that'll lead up about 600 acres of the 2,000 acres. So we're looking at which 600 of the 2,000 to, to use. Maybe it's closer to an interconnection point into the grid than some of the other acreage and maybe a little bit you know, more remote from that. And so we, we think the larger developments uh, just you know, for us uh, are the ones that we want to go after. Um, and, um, and, you know, because again, we are a public private development company and we're looking at the clients that we deal with being able to own pretty large pieces of property to develop. Yeah. So a minimum uh, amount of acreage is a hundred? Uh, for us, it, right. it, it, it would be, that would be, you know, probably a 20, 38, 30 megawatt development, 20 to 30 million. And, and that you know, absolutely could work, uh, you know, for for our clients. In fact, we may find that for this first one that we're doing with this big city, that we want to build, you know, 20 megawatts because it's immediately uh, inputable into the current lines into the grid. But those lines may have to be upgraded. So if we build a, a, a smaller phase one and, and get that into, into the grid. And then over the next couple of years, they increase that line, that voltage for the line so that we can then put 100 megawatts, 200 megawatts into it. That's what we're going to want to do. So you're, you're going to work with your engineers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to determine your ability to interconnect. That's one of the first things that you do in looking at, at getting fully approved um, for a, a shovel ready product. And you have to be able to interconnect with the local power supply, right? The local, you've got to get your permissions from the local <laughs> power suppliers and the state power suppliers. Yeah. Would you find some of the power companies might not want that? Uh, yeah, well, um, that's kind of what we experienced uh, a couple of years ago in Louisiana, mm -hmm. strictly because the, that local provider wasn't just owned by its originally the, 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 that local provider sold their company to a conglomerate that was headquartered in Canada. Mm -hmm. And our ability to converse, you know, in, in Canada with them versus conversing in Baton Rouge, wherever they were, mm -hmm. um, it, it presented a, a hill that we just couldn't climb at the time. And that project never got built, but it was for a major airport. Um, and uh, on on a, a lot of acreage that they saw for the long term would be very beneficial to them. Hadn't happened yet, but we did need that local power company to be the off taker uh, for the energy that we produce on that particular farm. Yeah. All right. Well, Ray, great information, sir. Thank you for joining us and being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. All right. And thank you for joining us around the country. Yeah. Please share the show. I think this is something that we need to get out to municipalities, states, uh, counties, uh, developers, uh, landowners. Let's get this show out there. Uh, and hey, please connect with us on your favorite social media. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh. And join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show.
America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bullet Realty. For commercial brokerage sales and leasing in the southeast U.S., contact our show host by email at michael at bullrealty.com. By Commercial Agent Success Strategies, 21 incredible one-hour agent training videos. Learn more at commercialagentsuccess.com. And by Lumet. For senior housing, healthcare, and multifamily financing, visit lumet.com. For more podcasts and videos, subscribe and visit CREshow.com.